American education would be comic if it were not so tragic in its consequences. Recently, I received a letter from a schoolteacher asking for an autographed picture for his class because it would ultimately, U-L-T-E-M-E-T-L-Y, help his students to have me as a role model, R-O-L-L. Atypical? Let us hope so. But a few years ago, a study showed the average verbal scholastic aptitude test score for aspiring teachers to be 389 out of a possible 800. With American school children repeatedly finishing at or near the bottom on international test comparisons, the response of the education establishment has been to seek ever more non-academic adventures to go off on. Among the latest of these innovations, a magic word in the wonderland of educational newspeak, is called outcome-based education. Like so many of the catchphrases that come and go, it means nothing like what it seems to mean. Education based on outcomes might sound to many people like finally creating a bottom line for schools, teachers, and administrators to be judged by. Nothing of the sort. It is yet another way of getting away from academic work and indulging in psychological and ideological indoctrination. This is called advancing beyond rote learning and teaching schoolchildren to think. Many in the media gullibly repeat such phrases without the slightest investigation of what concretely they mean in practice. When concrete specifics leak out, there is often shock, as there currently is in California, where tests are intruding into students' family lives and sexual experiences, among other things. The parents who first protested were predictably labeled the religious right, but now even some in the educational establishment itself have begun to express concern. Not long before, parents in Connecticut who objected to film strips of naked couples engaged in sex, both homosexual and heterosexual, being shown in the local junior high school were labeled fundamentalists and right-wing extremists, even though they were in fact affluent Episcopalians. There are all sorts of prepackaged responses to critics of the public schools, of which this was just one. Recently, I got a first-hand dose of these stereotyped responses when addressing a class of students who are being trained for careers as teachers. They seemed disconcerted by the questions I put to them. Suppose you are wrong. How would you know? How would you test for that possibility? The very thought that the dogmas they were repeating with such fervor might be open to question or subject to evidence seemed never to have occurred to them. This was a far more ominous sign than their merely being wrong on particular beliefs. How can they teach anybody else to think if they themselves have not reached this elementary level of logic? By thinking, too many educators today mean teaching children to reject traditions in favor of their own emotional responses. Objections to such propaganda programs are called objections to letting children think. Anything less than a blank check for indoctrination is called censorship. In light of such non-academic activities in our public schools, it can hardly be surprising that American youngsters do so badly on academic tests administered to youngsters around the world. 
nor is it surprising that academic work is so readily abandoned for social experiments, ideological crusades, and psychological manipulations by educators whose own academic performances have long been shown to be substandard. It is not uncommon for those few schools with traditional academic programs to have waiting lists of parents who want to get their children admitted. When admission is on a first-come, first-served basis, it is not uncommon for parents to camp out overnight in hopes of getting their children into institutions that will teach them substance instead of fluff and politically correct propaganda. Against this background, recent campaigns for a longer school day and a longer school year are farcical. If a lack of time is the problem, why are schools wasting so much time on innumerable non-academic activities? Moreover, there is no amount of additional time that cannot be wasted on similar pursuits. No small part of the existing problems of the public schools is that the school day is already so long and boring, with so little to challenge the ablest students. Moreover, many average and below-average students who have lost all interest are retained by compulsory attendance laws for years past the point where their presence is accomplishing anything other than providing jobs for educators. Despite orchestrated hysteria about the dropout problem, what many apathetic students most need is a cold dose of reality that they can only get out in the workaday world, not in the never-never land of the public schools. <laughs> Michael, look what happened to me. Look what happened to me. We're school children. How did this happen? Why are we school children? Uh, you know what I think this is? Michael, your guess is as good as mine. What is it? I think they're making us do a public education episode. I don't want to do public education. I don't want to be here. Can't we do an episode on, like, North Korea or African succulents or drag queens? No, they're telling us we have to do this, Tom. No one wants to do public education, Michael. It's compulsory. Michael, it's no secret that American public schools, for the most part, are not living up to the collective standards of the people. We're taught that they're underfunded, undermined by privatization, and anything less than college pursuits are demeaning. We're still we're apt to get knuckle-slapped for challenging any of these assumptions. But today, you and I will be the bad students. Tom, this school sucks. Why didn't they just spend some money to make it more fun and make us want to come here? You know, Michael, you always hear that the reason public education sucks is that they're chronically underfunded. Well, as a matter of fact, spending has way more than doubled on education just since 1980, even accounting for inflation. Are we way more than twice as smart? What? More than doubled? That's three times the amount. How much money are they spending exactly? Well, let's look overall, and then let's look at particular states. This graph shows how much it costs to get a full K-12 public education going from about 1970 to about 2010. It goes way, way up during those years. 
But then look at the test scores everybody gets. Pretty much unchanged through all those years, despite all the increases in spending. Or how about this? We look at particular states. We find that New York spends over $23,000 per student per year. The District of Columbia spends nearly $22,000 per student per year. Doesn't that seem excessive to you? Yeah, I get people say teachers need to be paid more, but you can't just write more on a paycheck. There needs to be some figure. Well, how about this story, Michael? John Chubb worked for the liberal Brookings Institution, and he wanted to know how many administrators worked in the central office of the New York City public school system. So he got on the phone, and he called in, and he kept getting transferred from one person to the next. Six different people had no idea what the answer was. Then he started to reach people who did know the answer, but they weren't allowed to tell him what it was. So by about the 13th call, he found somebody who knew the answer and was allowed to tell him. And the answer was 6,000. But he didn't know. Is that a lot? Is that a little? So he thought, I'll call the Catholic schools. They educate one-fifth as many students, so they should have one-fifth the number of administrators. So he called up and said, how many administrators work in your central office? And the person said, well, I don't know. And he thought, oh, here we go. Another runaround. And then she said, let me count. She came back on the phone and said, 26. I see what's going on. Look at this little chart. Science scores, pretty flat. Math scores, pretty flat. Reading scores, pretty flat. Enrollment's pretty flat. So we've got a similar number of kids who are learning a similar amount. But costs are through the roof. And the only thing that's increasing is number of employees. The incentives are completely misaligned because it's not like the better schools get more money in the same way that the better furniture stores make more sales and earn more money. It's the worst schools that make more demands for money and generally get that additional money. So the worse you are, the more money flows in. Who's going to expect a good result from that? Everyone agrees, no matter where they stand politically, that poor kids need help. And as a result of this, money has been thrown at these poor districts at an extended rate for decades. But the results are not matching the expenditures. And the question still remains on the table, why do we keep trying to spend more money and not changing the approach if the outcomes aren't changing? And there's a reason for this. That money is going somewhere. It's going into the hands of public sector unions because they don't just represent educators for their teaching kids. They also represent administrators. And the more administrators there are, the more money is in the pockets of these bureaucracies, just like any bureaucracy in any sector. They are always going to want to have bigger budgets and more employees. Tom, I've had it with this place. I'm getting us the F out of here. I know. We'll use our imagination. Tom, you know imagination has no place in public school. But what we do have are some old books. Look at this one. What is that, the reading rainbow? No, Tom, it's the reading rainbow for copyright reasons. Using some animation, this old book can take us anywhere in the world we want to learn more about schools. Where would you like to go, Tom? How about India? India? All right. Reading Rainbow, take us to India.
boy, there sure are a lot of poor kids here. They're not going to be able to go to school. Maybe we could ask that teacher for help. Michael, that's not a teacher. That's James Tooley. The actor? What? No, James Tooley is an educational researcher from the UK. He found out that in India and other parts of the developing world, there's a huge array of low-cost private schools that are educating more people than the public schools in those countries at lower costs and with better results. The opposite of what we're led to expect. And almost nobody knew about it until James Tooley found it, researched it, and wrote about it. So here we are in countries that are quite poor, and yet even in these poor countries, parents are able to send their kids to low-cost private schools that they prefer to the government schools and that are educating more people. Nobody knows about this. I wonder why. America's still number one. We need to have some amount of public education to force kids to be educated because many parents are in a position to educate their own kids. Without public schools, we all know there'd be this Lord of the Flies, doomsday world of illiterate, uncivilized, uneducated marauders running around. But what Thule shows is that in poor countries, by far poorer than any American state, parents do care about their kids getting an education. And when government schools don't provide it, they draw from the small amount of resources they have to send their children to these low-cost private schools. So there are working alternatives to our system in other countries, and there's no reason why those working alternatives can at least be tried to some extent in our countries. But the argument is it's not enough that all the kids have to be going to school. They all have to be going to have a uniform school experience from Maine to Hawaii with their rich or whether they're poor, everyone has to be taught the same things in the same way. It's not obvious that this makes any sense. The students are not wrong when they say, I'm never going to use this stuff. They are never going to use it. The vast bulk of it, they're never going to use. Why can't they have a curriculum designed for their needs that focuses on their particular strengths? Yeah, this is a relic of the Cold War. You had the Russian communists put Sputnik up as the first satellite in space, and then all the Americans freaked out and said, hey, all the kids gotta learn science because we've gotta catch up to the Soviets. 60 years, 70 years later, and everyone from coast to coast is being forced to learn how to calculate the dew point and the degree at which water saturates the earth on a farm, as opposed to learning things like logical fallacies, how income taxes work, how to take out a mortgage, or even things that are simply interesting to them. Here we are living in the 21st century, and yet after 12 years plus kindergarten in the current system, students come out not knowing really anything practical that'll help them get a job in the current environment. All these sorts of things that might be practical, that might help them achieve in this kind of world, whether it's public speaking or whatever it is, they haven't been trained in any of them. And I'm speaking from experience. I helped to design a homeschool program and create courses for it, the Ron Paul curriculum. And public speaking, for example, is one of the things we teach, along with personal finance for teens or how to start your own home business, the kind of things that mean that when a kid gets out of school, he doesn't just have to sit by the phone and wait for somebody to call him up and say, we think you're useful. He's got alternatives. When you have this one-size-fits-all system, nothing fits anyone. Why do we have this little house in the prairie idea when we're a country that's so advanced that even the term information superhighway seems outdated? 
All the old people complain that kids spend too much time in front of screens, staring at their phones, and staring at their computers. They're expecting them to sit still, staring at the teacher at the blackboard. Is someone going to say with a straight face that teenagers have a tougher time finding information on the internet using computers and using advanced skills than their educators do? Look at it this way. An ambitious high school student can build up a graphic design portfolio. By the time he's out of high school, he'll be able to say to people, Yeah, I did something different. I've learned a skill. I'm good at it. Here's the receipts. I'm motivated and I'm different from other people. That's so much more preferable to forcing kids to learn skills that will not only be of no use to them, but will be of no use to their employer. Schools teach kids to read, but they also teach kids to hate reading. Because reading is now work. Reading is something you do not to learn, but to please somebody else. Imagine a system where kids are taught how to walk in the same way they're currently taught how to read. After a while, everyone would be on crutches. Whenever I see one of those yellow school buses go by, it gives me the chills. I realize most people don't have that reaction. It's that the kids are being taken to go sit obediently in rows and repeat back what they're told. And Michael, we're told that these schools have a no-bullying policy. But as we know, for the most part, the no-bullying policy consists of putting a poster on the wall that says no bullying. And that's pretty much it. But I would make the broader point that the bullying is the policy. We all know someone who's got a niece, nephew, child, brother, or sister who won't shut the heck up because they're asking so many questions because they're so interested in everything. Well, our educational system takes that spirit, throttles it, and forces those kids to be, in a very real sense, prepared to work in factories. They all have to come to school at the same time, just like punching in the clock. They have to sit in rows, just like on the conveyor belt. They have to quietly hold their hands, they have to sit, they have to listen. They're not even allowed to go to the bathroom without permission. Somehow, then, when they get home, they have to do homework because the teacher somehow couldn't educate them enough during the day. That also gives the message that every hour of your life belongs to some external authority figure. The whole process takes place in an institution paid for by tax money which already gives the kid the idea that that's legitimate. If you want something badly enough, you can just seize the resources and go build it. And so, as we mentioned before, it's no surprise that almost every school building in America has classrooms with the U.S. presidents from George Washington to the present, hanging on the wall, staring down with their benign visages on the students below. So they look at these people and already have a built-in veneration for them. These were selfless public servants without whom we'd all be working in coal mines, earning 10 cents a day, and getting our limbs blown off. It encourages that kind of thinking. It's much easier to perceive the problem with this if we imagine, by contrast, a system of schools funded by Walmart that had the Walmart CEOs and board members hanging on the walls. People would be up in arms, saying, why are we venerating these particular individuals? This is creepy and cult-like but it's not creepy and cult-like when it's the government, because that's the normal relationship we're expected to have toward people who are better than we are, who are believed to have our best interests at heart. This inculcates in the kids the exact opposite of independent thought, and it encourages nothing but the most conformist kinds of thinking. And ironically, Thomas Jefferson, who happens to be one of the faces up on that wall, would have been against this completely. The idea that little children would be staring at his image every day would have appalled him. They say social security is the third rail of American politics, 
The third rail is public education because everybody believes in it. It's the closest thing to an American church we have, which means there's virtually no independent thought about it. And yet the results it has produced in terms not just of test scores, but also in terms of the inquisitiveness or otherwise of Americans and American children have been so appalling that we desperately need somebody to say something about it. But almost nobody dares to be a heretic when it comes to the American church. It's amazing to what extent incompetence and wasteful money can be ignored by virtually everyone when it's done in the names of children. Tom, I'm getting us out of here. I'm going to return us to our grown-up selves. Reading Rainbow, take us to the bookstore. The adult bookstore. regards to the uh, educational equity, uh, I, I, I think that we should uh, equalize, if only to get rid of that phrase. <laughs> and, and, I, and I seriously think that uh, there's something to be said for getting that issue off the table, because it is a total red herring. But it's going to, as long as, as long as you don't have equalized spending in the schools, that is going to be blamed as one of the reasons for the other things. And so you want to get rid of it. It's a little like Adam Smith, you see, who argued that uh, uh, that labor unions should be allowed to exist, which they weren't in, in England in his time, uh, not because they would do a lot for the poor, but because as long as you forbade them, people would say, if only we had labor unions, you see, we, we would have our problems solved. Uh, I know that uh, there's these differences, and people fight over them. The argument's been made, if these differences don't matter, which they don't, a ton of evidence suggests the amount of money really doesn't make much difference. In Washington, D.C., they have some of the highest expenditures per pupil and some of the lowest scores in the country. In fact, a few years ago, I saw some data uh, on the different states. Of the five top states at that time, and it may still be true, in test scores, all were below the national average in expenditure per pupil. So it has no, no effect on anything except as a red herring confusing a lot of other issues. Uh, people ask, why, why then do the people in the suburbs fight to prevent this from happening? Because there are advantages. Uh, look, uh, I take Palo Alto High School as a classic example. Uh, Palo Alto High School has six tennis courts, some of which I've used, even though I never went to Palo Alto High School. Uh, they have a large parking lot, so that all the students will have a place to park their Jaguars and so on. Uh, they have a swimming pool, a baseball field. I mean, they're all the works. Now, none of that does anything for education. It's, it's part of their lifestyle, and they want to keep it fine. But uh, no, I, I, think, I think that issue ought to be off the table. Um, I was just curious about what you think of uh, Nicholas Lemon's thesis in his new book, The Big Test. I haven't read the book. Well, what, what, what is his thesis? He, he questions uh, the new meritocracy that has emerged with the use of uh, the, uh, he, he would probably use the scare quotes around the term objective uh, test of academic aptitude. And compared to what? Well, that's my question really. <laughs> well, that's the question economists always ask. Uh, compared to what? I mean, 
There's a story that, that someone, a friend in the economist ran into a friend in the street and his friend said, how are you? How's your wife? And he said, compared to what? <laughs> so, you know, nothing is easier than, than to prove that something human is, has imperfections. Uh, I'm amazed how many people devote themselves to that task. <laughs> yes, Jim Michaels. Wait, 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 uh, Jim, they're going to bring you the phone for you. Uh, How is the um, quest for cosmic justice relate to the the um, self-esteem thing which you referred to with Miss Simon before? Yes, well obviously people, if, if you're going to base self-esteem on performance, it cannot be equal because performance is never going to be equal. And so all you can get in terms of self-esteem is make-believe equality. And of course what happens in the schools is they grade, uh, in many cases, not on the objective result but on how you did relative to what the teacher thinks your ability was. And so you may do a wonderful job. They say, well, you know, he really was a very, he's a very bright kid. He could have done better than that. And so he gets a B. And the other student uh, uh, who really did a lousy job, but you know, it was a big struggle for him even to do that. And so he gets the B plus. And of course, what that means is that the whole grading system just becomes meaningless and confusing. Professor So, what you've said tonight uh, reflects such common sense, such self-evident wisdom. Why is such a point of view largely ignored in the national press in all of the discussions on the editorial pages and among the columnists when they discuss the subject of income inequality? I guess the quick answer is you have to ask them. Uh, I have no idea, except, except that, of course, the vision of cosmic justice is very beneficial to the people who hold it, even if it's not beneficial to those whom it's intended to benefit. And I think that's one of the reasons that there are people are so reluctant to give it up, because they feel wonderful. I'm sure that if we, we had had the kinds of teachers that we have today, uh, and they had lowered the standards to all of us as we were coming through the school, and we all ended up uh, going out into the world foredoomed to failure, those teachers would have felt wonderful about themselves. Because they say, hey, we're not leaning on these poor kids. We're taking into account that they come from backgrounds that are deprived. I mean, and particularly in education, this is devastating because it's been shown again and again that in one generation, people can do remarkable things with a decent education. Uh, Jaime Escalon, he did this out in uh, California with the Hispanic kids uh, who uh, scored so high on the calculus test that the educational testing service could not believe it. Uh, so an awful lot can be done. Language is the same thing, the whole notion that you have to have uh, bilingualism. Well, it's, it's known from a lot of research that uh, the child's brain is better able to assimilate languages in those first half dozen years than it will ever be able to do in later life, that the brain itself metamorphoses. And uh, if, you, if, you, if you don't learn a foreign language until you're 30, you're never going to speak it as well as if you'd learned it when you were five. Um, and so all these things can be done uh, but they're not going to be done as long as third parties think that the purpose of the educational system is to make them feel good about themselves. What do you, th do you think that, what do you think about school vouchers and school choice? Do you think that there's any... Uh, well, again, it's compared to what? Uh, in uh, in uh, achieving uh, true uh, traditional justice. <laughs> Well, I, I, I think they're absolutely necessary. I think that they have their dangers, but the dangers are primarily to those people who have good public schools uh, and who, who would then discover uh, uh, they, with, with a voucher system or who had good private schools. 
and who would find the government uh, intruding more and more into private schools as people went there with vouchers, as they almost inevitably would do. Uh, the, the people at the bottom are so badly off that they have practically nothing to lose. Uh, one of the great disgraces of American education, far more important than the differences in spending, uh, is the way teachers are allocated. That is, typically teachers start out in, 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 a, in a good middle-class school, and it turns out they're awful, they'll be moved on to another school and another. And eventually, they'll start moving them down the social ladder to neighborhoods where the parents are less educated, less affluent, less influential, less able to make trouble. Uh, and so they end up teaching those kids for whom education is their only road out of poverty. Uh, in Cali well, not only in California, but elsewhere, this constant shuffling of teachers around, which is done, by the way, simply because of the high cost of firing them, when I wrote a book on education a few years ago, I said it was $50,000 to fire one incompetent teacher. That has now been more than doubled since then. Uh, and so they move them around. And in fact, this happens so much that there are even names for this. It's called the Dance of the Lemons <laughs> or, or the Turkey Trot. <laughs> yes. Wait, wait, there's a phone coming up. Uh, microphone. Sorry. Is uh, the quest for cosmic uh, justice, is it a new phenomena? Uh, does it pertain only to education? Oh, no. Uh, what was its name in the past? Or was there a name in the past? There wasn't a name for it. I guess uh, people have simply had different notions of justice. I think sort of the codification of it was John Walls's book, A Theory of Justice, back in 1971. But I don't think he created this. I think one of the reasons for the success of his book was that he put into words what so many people already believed, particularly in the academic world, and what many people were already practicing. So this, this notion has always been there, uh, and it's been a source of great confusion, because people have said, well, there isn't real equality of opportunity if uh, this person has this and that person has that. Uh, in the educational system, it's devastating because there, it takes so many forms. One of them, for example, being even when, the, even when there's no income difference to talk about, there are ability differences, and the educational system coast to coast is bitterly set against any form of ability grouping, any form of accommodating to kids who have higher ability. Uh, and one of, the, one of the studies I saw, there was a kid who was uh, in the fourth grade, and he could score above the national average on the College Board SAT in math. And so it was suggested to the principal that this kid should be given something other than fourth grade math. And the principal reacted and he said, no, that would be a violation of social justice. <laughs> yes. you, you've, written in, you've written in the past about if parents knew what was being taught at the college level, and if, if an individual like myself only has so much time, it looks to me like the more serious problem is K through 12 than college level, and so where should I devote my time? Oh my, that is, that is a tough one. Uh, there's more than enough that needs to be done at every single level from kindergarten to the graduate school. Uh, one of the things that protects American education is the, is the fact that American universities are in fact leading universities of the world. But that's very misleading. Because some of these universities are so good that it's very hard for American college students to get into them. <laughs> and, and if you... Uh, separate out the various fields, and you go from the silliest and simplest, like such as education, all the way over to the other end of the spectrum, math and engineering and science, 
you find that the percentage of the PhDs which go to Americans are the highest over here in education, sociology, psychology, etc. And then as you proceed across the spectrum, that percentage declines until finally you get over to mathematics and engineering, where less than half of all the PhDs awarded in American universities go to Americans. And so what we really have are international universities on American soil, supported by American taxpayers, with a very large component of foreign professors and students. Um, and, so, and this is what is used to justify the American educational system. But uh, of course, the kids who come here from elsewhere come here with, with much stronger backgrounds. Uh, I was uh, surprised recently to learn that uh, out in Silicon Valley, they're actually recruiting engineers from Russia and India, not because they're necessarily better than American engineers, but because they speak English better. <laughs> Over here, I guess. Well, he's going to, someone else in the back. I'll get to you next. Two things. First of all, um, Professor Sowell, how does the, um, assuming that parents play a major role in the education of students, um, at what, how can social legislation, how can so cosmic justice be created um, when parents do not provide atmospheres conducive to learning in minority, in certain minority communities in certain, um, New York, for instance. Um, the second, my second question is... Well, wait, is, you, you, are you asserting this as a fact? Um, assuming that parents play a role and the teachers cannot play the only role in the education of students, mm -hmm. um, how can cosmic justice be created in an atmosphere where parents have not created um, a conducive learning atmosphere? Uh, I think, you're, as they say in the law, you're assuming a fact, not an evidence. I know this is one of the great beliefs in the educational establishments, that all problems in the educational establishment are caused outside the educational establishment. Uh, the evidence on that is not compelling. And what is especially not compelling is the determined effort of the NEA and other parts of the educational establishment to prevent this belief from being put to a test. If it is the case that the problems are all outside the system, they're in the parents, then why do they fight bitterly against all forms of choice and vouchers, which would allow you to find out that if we take the same kid with the same parents, watching presumably the same television programs as he always watched and so on, having the same attitudes, and transfer him over into a parochial school or some other kind of school, uh, why don't we find out whether, that, whether in fact he will not improve at all because it's not, it was never the school's fault in the first place. Uh, the bitterness of, the, of this, these battles uh, are hard to exaggerate. Uh, in, in California, they would they sent so-called truce squads around when people were trying to uh, sign up uh, petitions to get this issue on the ballot. And some of these people were, were, were not above using intimidation tactics to prevent people from signing. Uh, in New Jersey, one of the big companies, I think it was, Pe was Pepsi-Cola, was prepared to give scholarships to low-income kids to go, go from the public schools into the private schools. They were so bitterly opposed to this that suddenly Pepsi-Cola machines in the schools began to be vandalized and Pepsi had to back off its offer. So if it is in fact the case that all these problems originate outside the school system, why then are they not willing to put that belief to the test? I think we have time for one more question. Yes. Well, there's a gentleman here, I promised. That's fair, yeah. Uh, do you think that the uh, revival of what is deemed to be merit-based financial aid at the college level will be a force for, uh, 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 for merit in the college admissions process? Or do you think the colleges will apply their cosmic 
justice criteria in the allocation of merit-based aid. They, they may try, but I think the very fact that they've had, they, they've been backed into this. This is not something they wanted to do. In fact, it's fascinating to read in the Chronicle of Higher Education and other places, all the mea culpas of college presidents who uh, found themselves driven to actually awarding scholarships on the basis of scholarship. <laughs> no, no they, they, it is absolutely a dogma of the establishment that age should not be based upon uh, any form of uh, pr production. It's the only, form of, only place in, the, in American society where there's absolutely anathema to reward people for doing better. Thank you very much.